the men who negotiated the Colorado River Compact in 1922 would have asked Eugene Clyde LaRue if there was enough water in the river to split up between the states and the West, he would have said no. He would have said the science of that river system, of water in the arid West, told a different story. But they didn't ask LaRue. In fact, they excluded this most accomplished of the country's river experts when they were working out the deal. But LaRue would have said their dreams of development and verdant farmland in the West did not match reality. He had done the work. He had mapped out the patterns of shortages and droughts. And our guest on Radio West today says what happened to LaRue is a case study in the role of inconvenient science in a political debate. So we'll talk about it after this. There's a lot happening here at KUER. Get a glimpse behind the scenes with Station Insider. Sent to your inbox every Friday, Station Insider includes KUER news stories from the past week and the latest national headlines. Plus, sneak peeks at upcoming station happenings, new projects, and other must-know updates from NPR Utah. Sign up today at KUER.org slash newsletters. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. For the last several months on this program, we've been talking about the history of water in Utah, in the West, really. What the past tells us about drought, for example, or how the early settlers passed down these attitudes about water. Where we're headed on the show is to a hopefully you know, deep and honest conversation about water in the present. It's a really urgent conversation for reasons I don't need to explain. But in talking to historians and scientists and others over these last few months, it's become clear we've reached the point where something has to change. I don't think anyone disagrees about that. But there's this question of whether we have the will to do it. Because the things that have to change have been with us a long time, like our assumptions about growth and agriculture. But there's one more piece of this history we wanted to work through before we get to the question of right now. It's the history of the Colorado River Compact, the cornerstone of what's known as the law of the river in the West. Because and this is also something I think everyone agrees on. When negotiators got together in 1922 to hammer out the compact, they didn't have the right numbers for how much water was available to split up among the states. But they could have. One of our producers, Benjamin Bombard, joined me this week to take us through this story. Okay, so let's start at the point where you have these negotiators – gathered. They're all together. They're going to make this contract, divvy up this water from the Colorado River, right? But the first thing is they have to figure out just how much water is there. Yeah, they need a number. They need to know how much water is actually in the river. Is there enough that these states can do what they want to do? Can they develop their cities and irrigate their farms? Mm-hmm. And they had basically two options to choose from, two numbers that they could have worked with. And the numbers come from Two different people. Okay. Two different people. Two guys. Mm -hmm. Two guys. And I should mention that I learned about those two guys from these two guys. John Fleck. I'm a water policy researcher at the University of New Mexico. Eric Kuhn. I'm an author and writer about Colorado River issues. 
I worked for the Colorado River Water Conservation District for 37 years. John Fleck and Eric Kuhn co-wrote this book about the Colorado River Compact. It has this punny name. It's called Science Be Damned. And in their book, there's the first guy who came up with the number for the water in the Colorado River, Arthur Powell Davis. Arthur Powell Davis. Yeah, at the time, he was the director of the Bureau of Reclamation. And he also happens to be the nephew of John Wesley Powell, the famed explorer who was the first white man to run the Colorado River. And there's a picture. It's really the only picture I could find of Davis. And he just looks like a politician. He's dapper, well-coiffed, strong jawline, nice suit. He was ambitious. John Fleck City was also kind of a schmoozer. A dealer and a fixer and a diplomat. He's a compromiser. Davis assumed there was at least, we call an acre foot. It's a football field, a foot deep of water. So he assumed that the flow was about 20 million acre feet at the border with Mexico and Yuma. So on the Colorado River, at the border of Mexico and Yuma, Arizona, there are these gauges, these measuring devices that could be used to tell how much water was in the river at any given time. And that's how Davis and the Bureau of Reclamation arrived at their number. Let's say their number again. They, they come up with 20 million acre feet. And, and, and Davis says that that's enough, that's plenty for what these negotiators wanted? Plenty. Arthur Powell Davis essentially said to these people, look, you guys have plenty of water to work with. You just figure out how to carve it up. <laughs> you just need to figure out how to carve it up. That's so, it. okay, that's one option. But you said there were two options. There were two numbers. Yeah, and the second number comes from a man named Eugene Clyde LaRue, E.C. LaRue. It's another good name. It is a good name. (laughs) These guys had good names. Yeah, they did. And really, LaRue was thought of as the expert on the Colorado River at the time. Even Arthur Powell Davis gave LaRue his due credit. LaRue was a hydrologist. He actually began his career with the Reclamation Service here in Salt Lake City. In, In many ways, LaRue was the antithesis of Arthur Powell Davis. There's this great picture of him in John Fleck and Eric Kuhn's book. He's shirtless, wiry, wearing this kind of floppy cap, crouched by the side of a stream in the middle of the desert somewhere. I've seen this picture, actually. It's great. And he looks like a like a desert rat. Yeah, I think anybody in Utah would recognize E.C. LaRue as a desert rat. Yeah. He was a field researcher, is what he was. He was a scientist. Yeah. Really, he was a, a scientist's scientist. E.C. LaRue thought that science and nothing else should dictate what happened with the Colorado River. He spent years traveling the river and its tributaries, and he put together this comprehensive study for the USGS about the river and how it should be developed. But here's the thing. LaRue didn't use river gauge data to arrive at his numbers for the flows of the Colorado. He got his information from the Great Salt Lake. Wait, what do you mean? What, what, what does the lake have to do with the Colorado River? Well, LaRue had this ingenious idea. The way John Fleck told me, he was just a stunningly clever man. And he came up with this really clever approach. LaRue got records from the earliest days of the Mormon settlers in the Salt Lake Valley. And he measured the rise and the fall of the Great Salt Lake. 
LaRue looked at the map and realized that it's kind of next to the Colorado River Basin. And he figured, you know, the climate over there in the mountains that are feeding the Great Salt Lake is probably similar to the climate in the Colorado River Basin. People had already been starting to think the Great Salt Lake might be a tool to measure water in the basin that fed the Great Salt Lake. You know, when the lake rises over time, that means more rain is falling and snow in the mountains than is evaporating off the lake. And when it's dropping, it's the other way around. LaRue's innovation was to apply that to the next basin over. In other words, what LaRue basically did is he looked at the Great Salt Lake as this giant rain gauge, what Fleck and Kuhn call a landscape-scale rain gauge. It could tell you not just how much water flows into the Great Salt Lake itself, but how much flows in the Colorado River. And not only that, Davis's number was based on just over 20 years of data, but LaRue was looking at more like 60-plus years of records, going back to 1850. And if you look back that far, you could learn about the impact of drought on the Great Salt Lake and, by proxy, the Colorado River. Hmm. And there was a big one, actually, a big drought. It lasted 19 years from 1886 to 1905, and Davis's data didn't really capture it. Hmm. So you have, on one hand... Davis, who's telling negotiators for this compact, okay, there's 20 million acre feet of water available in the river, but what number does LaRue come up with? Well, at the time that negotiators were hammering out the compact, LaRue said there were 16.2 million acre feet annually in the Colorado. A few years later, he refined his data on the Great Salt Lake, and he arrived at an even smaller number. 15 million acre feet. 15 million acre feet versus 20. 5 million million less than Davis had arrived at. In either case, LaRue told his superiors they should be careful. There may not be as much water as you think in this river. There may not be enough water to irrigate all the lands that you want to irrigate. Hmm. So what happens? Well, the negotiators, these representatives from western states like Utah... They run with the number Arthur Powell Davis came up with, 20 million acre feet. 20 million acre feet. And, but, but why? Why didn't they go with LaRue's number? Well, for a lot of reasons. And one of them, and not, not a small reason, was that LaRue was, he was kind of a jerk. Brilliant, but really lacking in people's skills. Headstrong. An irascible character. Defensive. Extremely arrogant. He was not a team player, let's put it that way. And because of his personality and because he was known for saying there's not enough water for all, he was purposely excluded from advising the commission in 1922. Excluded? Yeah. LaRue wasn't even there. Wow. The man widely thought of as the expert on the Colorado River He wasn't even invited to the table when leaders were carving up the water. But, you know, who was there? (laughs) Well, let me guess. Arthur Powell Davis. Yeah, Davis. Yeah. He was there. Yep. He was actually a major player in the negotiations. And he was there really for the exact opposite reasons that LaRue wasn't. His abilities as a communicator, as a compromiser, a schmooze. He is the one who tries to come up with ideas that will make everyone happy. And in this case, what will make everyone happy is knowing there's enough water in the Colorado. And that's what he does. He gives them the number they want to hear. So what that means is now, for 100 years now, 
the states in the West in this Colorado compact, they've been operating on this number that was just way off, basically. Yeah, pretty much. And these two numbers, Davis says there's 20 million acre feet of water. LaRue says, you know, 15, 16 million acre feet. It's been 100 years now. Who was right? LaRue. Hands down. No question about it. What we know today is that for the past 100 years or so, the flows on the Colorado have averaged annually about 14.8 million acre 14. feet. 14.8. Close to 15. Close to 15, a lot less than 20 million acre feet. It's pretty darn close to the numbers LaRue arrived at by studying the Great Salt Lake. And you know, Doug, when I talked with John Fleck about this story, he told me that there's this thing that can happen sometimes when science bumps up against politics. It's, It's like a wonky word, scientization. It's the desire for a political actor to pick the piece of science that supports their desires and their interests and their values. And that's what the negotiators of the Colorado River Compact did when they picked Arthur Powell Davis's science. Inconvenient science was ignored in the service of political interests. Mm. Confirmation bias won the day. But maybe that wasn't entirely a bad thing. What do you mean? I mean, the whole point of the Colorado Compact was to support the growth of this empire in the arid West. And it's important to recognize that it worked. We have Phoenix and Tucson and Albuquerque and Los Angeles and San Diego and farming in the Imperial Valley, Las Vegas, Salt Lake City, the Wasatch Front. We have all these communities that developed in the way we planned. We just now are running out of water. (laughs) So we perhaps overshot. It is not like we overshot by just a little. We overshot by a figure of 5 million. 5 million acre feet of non-existent water. Enough to cover 5 million football fields with a foot of empty air. It's like the Colorado River Compact was built on a house of cards. And ever since, the people in charge of managing how we use the river... They've been trying to prop that house of cards up any way they can, while still sticking to the law of the river, of course. So, Ben, what what happens to Eugene Clyde LaRue? Well, when Congress was debating the Colorado Compact in 1925, LaRue's boss at the USGS sent him a telegram. He told him, we know you have the best of intentions, but if you know what's good for you, you'll keep quiet about the compact. He turned in his resignation a year later, but he never really gave up his life's work. When he died of a heart attack in 1947, he was still working for the government, still working on water. He was a scientist until the day he died. Hmm. Benjamin Pombard. Ben, thanks. Thanks, Doug. You heard from John Fleck there. He's a water policy researcher at the University of New Mexico. And Eric Kuhn, a retired water manager in Colorado. Together, they co-authored the book Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. We'll hear more from Eric Kuhn when we come back from a break. You're listening to Radio West.
One of the things that you can count on from KUBR is that we've got your back when it comes to reporting the news. And one of the things that KUBR counts on to keep it all going? Contributions from listeners. One way that you can help is to donate a vehicle that you no longer need. It's free, it's easy to do, and it could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. The process is simple. Learn more and get started today at KUBR.org slash vehicle. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about the history of the Colorado River Compact. When state and federal negotiators met in 1922 to divvy up the water in the Colorado River system, they had the numbers wrong. And it's a mistake Eric Kuhn says we've been dealing with ever since. For more than 30 years, Eric Kuhn worked for a major water agency in western Colorado. And in that time, he says, he learned a very valuable lesson. In resource management, it's too easy to ignore the difficult decision of being conservative. It's so easy to try and say, well, we will give everybody what they need, even though it's not there. Uh, and, and so I thought that, you know, working with John, that we could have a message that says, let's not make the mistakes of the past. Let's open the dialogue to climate science. Let's also open it to uh, the claims of the native tribes that were here so that the decision making takes in a broader perspective. You know, back in the compact days, there were lots of people involved, but the club was really related to the water managers, the state engineers, and a few political people that followed it, the governors and a few senators. Uh, So it was relatively closed process. They accomplished a lot. Look at what we built. But they also made the mistake of over allocating the resource and ignoring important members of society, ignoring the tribes, ignoring the needs of the of the, of the environment. And those those mistakes are catching up with us or have caught up with us. We need to be more inclusive in how we allocate the water and we need to allocate the amount of water that's there, not the amount of water we hope is there or we wish was there. It's interesting to say that it was a it was a closed process. And I'm wondering today even though there is more transparency, I'm wondering just in effect the way it works with people, how how aware they are. If they, if in some ways there's a kind of de facto closed process going on because maybe Westerners aren't aware of the day-to-day impact of the Colorado Compact on their lives. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's generally true in, in some places in Arizona because, you know, Arizona is such a you know, desert state and mm. it's so reliant on the Colorado River water. It's the only real source other than groundwater, which they're depleting. Yeah. I think there's more awareness in, uh, in places like Arizona. In my home state of Colorado, you know, 90% of the people live east of the Continental Divide. Mm. You know, on the Front Range, and they have the Arkansas and the and the and the South Platte rivers. Now they import a lot of water from the west of the mountains to the east, but there is not as much attention to Colorado River issues. Uh, you know, where, because ninety percent of the population lives elsewhere. Uh, I mm. think in Utah, there's considerable understanding of the the river because of the wonderful environment it's created. Uh, the, 
national parks and that. But uh, again, water use is secondary in terms of what we think about along the Wasatch Front. I, I think it's uh, indicative of the problem. The Great Salt Lake is the same problem as the Colorado River. You know, E.C. E. LaRue over 100 years ago realized that the two were hydrologically connected because they had the same weather patterns. Yeah. So the, the two are connected. And I, I see the problem that Utah has with uh, dealing with the Great Salt Lake levels as being the same problem that the basin has in dealing with the Colorado River, and that's aridification. We're going to have to fundamentally change how we think about the resource if we're going to not have significant impacts. Let's go back, um, though, because you write about how from this very first meeting, the commissioners were concerned, you say, with equity. Driven, you write, by this need to negotiate a legally and politically equitable agreement. What, what's important about uh, about this? Because you say that premise um, created the situation where we find ourselves today. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it uh, it was as simple as the politics of you needed congressional support in the Senate. Uh, you needed uh, to get uh, a coalition of senators, more so Senate, you know, because of the, each state had two senators, you needed to get a political coalition that could pass legislation to authorize the construction of Hoover Dam, the All-American Canal, ultimately yeah. Glen Canyon Dam, ultimately the Central Utah Project, which takes water from the uh, from the Uinta Mountains over the divide into the Wasatch Front. You needed this political support to get these things done. Uh, so wait, and, what you're saying is that th these were political imperatives that are driving this, not the imperatives of of science, basically. Is that is that the basic point here? That, that is the point. Um, yeah. You know, science was there, but the science was, was secondary um, to the politics. Uh, and since the, we divided naturally into an upper river and a lower river, having equity between these basins, equity of development potential was important um, to the senators and the governor of Utah in the 1920s. Um, yeah. George Dern was a very mm. important player in the passage of the, of the Boulder Canyon Project Act. Having the right to benefit from the economic development of the river in an equitable way was really critical to selling this compact back home. You know, and each of the commissioners had to take it home. They had to take it back to their legislatures. And, and they did so in six of the seven states. It passed relatively quickly in that seventh state, Arizona, got into trouble in Arizona. And, you know, Arizona didn't ratify the compact until 1944, 20 years later, 22 years later. You know, so the, the politics back home were the driving force in terms of what needed to happen. And again, if you're a governor of an upper river state uh, or a senator from the upper river state or a, an important member of the legislature, you wanted the right to benefit from future development of that river, which was in those days, irrigation was seen as a way to populate the West. It was hmm. it was a way it was it was the I'll, I'll use the word it was socialism of the day. It was 
how do we move people into this arid area? Well, we have to subsidize their water supplies. We have to subsidize. Ultimately, we subsidize their electrification of the West, telephone service. We use government programs to set the stage for the development of the rural West. Hmm. Now, you and I don't think, wow, people are moving to Colorado by themselves because they love the, the way they live. They're moving to the Wasatch Front because they love Utah and they love the environment. But in those days, they would move Colorado so they could have a 160-acre farm or a 320-acre yeah. farm for the two of them. And that was the economic development of the day. It wasn't the great recreation and the great quality of life in those days. It was irrigation that brought them to the West. Hmm. So, so another thing that was important here was every drop of the water was spoken for and, and consumed. That was also the result of all of this. Yes, and, and in many ways, that was the plan. Um, yeah. Where E.C. LaRue and Arthur Powell Davis and John Wesley Powell and Herbert Hoover all agreed was that if we let water run to the ocean, we were wasting economic activity. A, water, a drop of water that makes it to the ocean is a drop of water wasted. That was a common view um, in the 19-teens and 20s. You mentioned this before, but let me just sort of get at it again. It didn't seem to take long after the compact was drawn up and ratified that a drought hit. This came in, I think it was 1931. So there must have been some kind of realization that, that came fairly soon for the people who had negotiated that compact. Exactly. I, I think in 1944, Herbert Hoover who was then a retired president of the United States, okay, um, he wrote a friend a, a letter that basically said that the longer we look, the, the less water there is in the Colorado River and the more value that water has and the more we're going to fight over it. You know, so by the 1940s, Hoover had recognized that, that they had allocated too much water. By the 1950s and 60s, we sort of realized that we'd allocated too much water. And well, how are we going to solve that? Well, in the debate over the Central Arizona project, uh, the proposal by Floyd Dominey, the then commissioner, was we were going to import water. So even though the, the compact negotiators had overstated the resource, there was an easy solution. That easy solution was to take water from the Columbia River and import it into the Colorado River. And of course, that never happened. I don't think it ever will because the folks in the Columbia were having their own, even though it's a much, much bigger river, um, they weren't all that anxious to see water move from the Columbia River into the Colorado River. Uh, they have endangered species issues. They generate power with it. Uh, I mean, there's a regionalism to rivers and the idea that we could spend well, tens and tens of billions of dollars in today's cost to move water from the Columbia River Basin into the Colorado River because we over-allocated it uh, in the 1920s. That was popular in the Southwest, but it, it never caught on nationwide. So I want to ask you, um, the things you write about is that what started to become um, apparent the people who had negotiated all of this was that as 
climate change, for example, had had began to have an impact or that this drought began to take hold, that the basin took on this supply and demand imbalance, which has meant what? Because you describe this as where we've ended up is this kind of stressful balancing act. So t- talk about that. What What is that and how did the different states respond to that? What, 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 how were they balancing? What were they balancing? Well, if you look at today, we're using, you know, 2 million acre feet, which is about, you know, 15, 20% of the supply more than we think it will sustain in the long run. Hmm. Plus the river because of climate change is, is much more unpredictable. And the assumption always has been that if you look at a river and you look at the past hundred years and you had data about the past 50 to hundred years, you could predict what it's going to be in the future. Climate change has changed that. It's changed that paradigm. The past is no longer the way to predict the future. That it means that we're going to be have to look at things very differently, um, these allocations of water. Now, since irrigation was the driving force for um, much of the development, they had, that irrigation has those senior rights up and down the river in Utah and Colorado and in Arizona and California. And the city's growing, you know, the, the, the Southwest is the most urban of the parts of the country, meaning that uh, of the total population, um, most of us live in, in big cities hmm. and they were junior. So we were going to have to use less water. How are we going to use less water? We're going to have to take water from agriculture and move it to the cities and we're, our overall use is going to have to re- be reduced by 15 to 20% at least. And we may have to continue reducing as climate change continues to impact the river. So we overshot development and now we're in a phase of undevelopment. And to do that, it creates urban versus rural agriculture versus the cities. In many states, it's red versus blue because the cities are blue and the rural areas are very red. That's the case in Colorado. You know, so we've created this divisiveness because we overshot, because we overallocated the system. And it's, it's going to be a struggle. I'm impressed with the willingness of everyone to sit down at the table and talk about these. Um, but we've yet to come up with a solution because, you know, if, if we were to say renegotiate the compact and Utah's governor were to appoint a compact commissioner, well, that commissioner is going to come back and say, Utah has to use less water because there's less water in the system. What's the legislature going to do when it has to ratify that? Um, it's going to well, be very difficult. Yeah, I think that's an important question because one of the things you say, another one of the conditions that this has led to, the, this imbalance um, and this trying to, you know, the stressful balancing act, is that it's created this kind of culture, this sort of ecosystem of lawyers and politicians and bureaucrats. And so the question is just how entrenched is that system? that has been created and how much more difficult will it make to rework that system and renegotiate some of these ideas, rethink the science here? Well, and, you know, I I think it's fair to say that every major state or every major water user has a lawyer, a water manager that can make the case that everyone else, not 
me is going to have to conserve. And that's going to be a, a road to failure or more conflict <laughs> in the basin. Um, cutting our uses, you know, it's something that people have relied on for a long time. For example, we're going to, uh, you know, California has been ahead of the other states by about 20 years. The Metropolitan Water District in the early 19 or the early 2000s had to go to the what's called the Palo Verde Irrigation District and they buy. They own now 30% of the of the lands in this big irrigation district on the river that they won't irrigate when the water's not there because they control the resource. So they, they control the lands. So it it's that kind of thing that has to happen basin-wide. And it's much more difficult in Arizona and in Utah and in Colorado to move water from irrigation to agriculture because of the po- local politics, uh, but wait, well, are you are you are, but are you saying that you can't count on people to conserve their way out of this imbalance? That you, that's one thing you can't rely on that they they just won't conserve to the point where it needs to be done. Well, you know, I think it's every major city on the river. We the, the cities use about fifteen percent of the river's water. Uh, we have a shortage of 20 to 25 percent. So you could cut out every use that a city that urban people make and still not balance the system. So the bulk of it's going to have to come from irrigation and from irrigated agriculture and from the rural communities. That's just the math. I think the, one of the lessons of our book and the lessons that we heard from the recent meeting we had in Las Vegas is math matters. Uh, math balancing matters. Uh, John Ensminger, the uh, general manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, said he believes in people, he believes in the the process, but he believes in math even more uh, so that we're going to have to cut. And I'm an optimist and because I think we will get there and we probably will get there without litigation because I think almost everyone re- recognizes that a court can't make water. They can decide who's right or who or who's wrong or they can interpret a statute, but they're not going to create more water. So I think the process of undeveloping the river is going to be, it's going to have some difficult choices, yeah. but it's ultimately going to come, there's going to be less alfalfa yeah. and, and food grown and hay grown in this basin because there's not the water to support it. And we can't take water away from people. I mean, you can cons- ask people to conserve, but ultimately for the health and safety, cities like Phoenix and Las Vegas in Denver, Grand Junction and Salt Lake City need water. Eric Kuhn, along with John Fleck, he co-authored the book Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. We'll take another break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. KUER has a new way for you to communicate with us. We're calling it Tell KUER. Tell KUER is a feature in our mobile app that allows you to send voice messages to the station. Let us know how we're doing, why you listen, or what you'd like to hear more of. Got an idea for a local news story? It's a great place to drop us a line about that, too. Send us a voice message with Tell KUER and find it in the menu of KUER's mobile app. 
This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. When the Colorado River Compact was signed in 1922, it was based on bad science. Our guest, the water expert Eric Kuhn, says it's taken these tweaks and workarounds for the past hundred years to make it work. But now he says it's time to renegotiate the compact and establish a new scientific foundation for how we understand and use the water in the Colorado River system. One of the things you write about is how because they got the the water numbers wrong early on, you know, the water that would be available for development, and because they had to deal with this imbalance, they then had to create these these workarounds. And that you say they they were they were pretty ingenious about these workarounds. Now the question of whether they'll continue to work we'll get to in a minute, but what were these workarounds that we've seen develop over the years? Um, well, we've taken an approach since 2000, uh, since the, really the drought from, that began in 2000 through 2004, where there was a rapid decline in reservoir levels, especially in Lake Powell, that we have to do something. And that do something has been primarily temporary. That's why we call them workarounds. Yeah. What we would end up doing is saying, let's, let's, uh, I give you the example of Southern California reaching agreements with the Palo Verde Irrigation District and Imperial Irrigation District, two of the largest and most senior water rights on the river. We've created a situation where we're paying people to fallow lands, paying them not to grow crops. But that's a temporary process because once we stop paying them, they still have the right to continue to use water and grow crops to wait to see what happens, to wait for the for you know wet years to return on the reservoirs to recover. So we've done that in most states, up lower basin more so than the upper basin, and that hasn't worked. So instead of recovering storage, we keep dropping and now we're to the point where we can't allow the reservoirs to go below to much lower than what they are today because we will not be able to deliver water because of the facilities the construction mm-hmm. the parameters related to the you know to the operation of the facilities we can't generate power which is important so we've been creatively trying to slowly reduce our demands as the reservoirs dropped, but we haven't got there yet. And all of a sudden now we've got to cut another couple million acre feet of uses and it's a real challenge. Here's a a, a question that you raise um, in, in your book. Do these states, you say, even acknowledge there's no more Colorado River water uh, system water left for development. And I think that's an it seems like an obvious question. Of course they do, but do they? Do they acknowledge that there's not water left for development? Well, I'll, I'll use Utah's example of the Lake Powell pipeline. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I would say a year ago, Utah had not acknowledged it was uh, you know twelve months, eighteen months ago the development of this Lake Powell pipeline was still a priority with the state of Utah. Today, based on what I heard uh, in Las Vegas, is they've put it on hold. Mm -hmm. It's no longer, you're waiting to see what happens. 
So they're very reluctant to say, no, you can't develop. And the same is true in Colorado. We don't have a big pipeline, but we've got a couple of smaller projects that are moving forward. And being able to say no to these projects that have been in development uh, for 10, 20 years is politically very hard. But again, the best example is what's happened with the Lake Powell pipeline. And I think this is positive, the fact that Utah and Gene Shawcroft, Utah's Upper Colorado River Commissioner, appointed by, by the governor, has said that effectively we put the project on hold. He hasn't said that they're not going to build it. He said, mm. recognizing the, the system is in crisis, it, would, it would, doesn't make sense for us to pursue development of more water right now. That's, that's what I heard. Hmm. Um, so yes and no. Um, yeah. They're saying there's not enough water now, but we're going to withhold um, our, any conclusion about whether there is in the future. And see how prayer goes or something? <laughs> I mean, wh- yes. Yeah, what are exactly. They, yeah, right. So, well, well, here's another question, though. It's like it. Um, what's the understanding among the players in the compact right now about the fact that, that, that the compact itself was negotiated and finalized based on faulty water numbers, based on an assumption and a complete anomaly in terms of the amount of water? Is there even an, an acknowledgement that, that, that that's the case among these players? Uh, there is on some of them, and, and and I think the Southern Nevada Water Authority has been a leader in both conservation and the recognition that there's not enough water. I think that some states are there recognizing we're all going to have to reduce our uses. Everyone in the basin is going to have to reduce their uses. And other states um, are slower to get there. My own state, uh, you know, is a good example. Uh, Colorado, um, Colorado up until recently has said, um, we want to preserve the ability to develop water in the future. You know, so it's a mangled, muddled message, but I think reality is slowly hitting us. And the most recent six months have really, I've seen a major difference, um, Hmm. you know, in the attitude that, there's not enough water we're all going to have to conserve. And if we're going to reduce uses by 20%, everyone's going to have to participate in that to, a, to, to some degree. So climate change is now forcing our hands. Um, a, a mega drought, aridity, as you say. Um, and so you write about the fact that these incremental approaches, that they may not work anymore. And you say that the the facts that that were used for past management of the system they've now been supplanted by this new reality what do you mean by this new reality and um it just an entire entirely new way of thinking about this i suppose uh yeah i i think the new reality is that we're overdeveloped and that's a long-term problem um i think Three, four years ago, there was an acknowledge we're overdeveloped, but there was not an acknowledge that that's a long-term problem. I think that's the difference. Uh, we're temporarily overdeveloped, so we can we can fallow lands, we can pay irrigators to not grow crops this year, next year, year after. Now we've said is instead of 
paying people not to grow crops? How do we implement permanent conservation measures? How do we permanently reduce our demands? So the system will be in balance again in the future. And it's going to be in balance at a lower level of development, at a lower level of consumption. Hmm. So what is it? What does a new approach look like? You talk about how the system needs to be – the compact needs to be revised or re, re, reinterpreted, you say. Um, that there needs to be a new – so what does it look like, I guess? What is this new system, this new approach that you have in mind? Yeah, you know, and, and I'm, I'm speculating here and I'm, I'm predicting that we're going to allocate water based on how much is there. So – not just reservoir levels, because we were allocating water on reservoir levels and the reservoir levels kept going down. We're going to have to say, you know, if there's 10 million acre feet of water coming into the reservoirs, we can only use 10 million acre feet. And if that means that, you know, California has to reduce its uses from 4.4 million, which is their normal use to 3.5, they have to accomplish that. Hmm. And same is true in the upper basin. So, we're going to get a percentage of that water. And then I believe that there has to be a market system. There has to be a way to use, to move water from lower value economic uses to higher value economic uses. You know, that that's going to be critical. So the two of them put together are going to create a more fluid system. Um, you know, when I say more fluid, it's going to have changes year to year based on water supply. Hmm. And, um, it's not going to have this certainty that, oh, the upper basin had a right to develop seven and a half, the lower basin yeah. eight and a half, you know, Arizona has a right to 2.8 each year. It's going to be much more fluid, much more dynamic and probably more controversial system because we're going to have to react much faster than we have in the past. So you're imagining maybe every year these stakeholders get together and they say, okay, Here's what we've got. This is what we're looking at. Here's and then and then the the they duke it out, I guess, for um, how the allocation would work, as opposed to one process that was set in stone a hundred years ago. As you say, there's more. There's something more dynamic at play here. That every year they they start again, basically, and take a look at it. Is something like yeah. that? Something like that. And if we can recover, if we can build a cushion of storage, uh, maybe we can say every two or three years. Hmm. Because, you know, that cushion of storage gave us some time, but we have to rebuild it. We have to have some water in our savings account. And we don't right now. The the, the savings accounts are are gone uh, in Lake Mead and Lake Powell. So, uh, yes, I imagine a, a system where we got to get together on a year, every two, every, every three years and say, this is how much water is coming into the system. This is how much water people can have. But we also have to open up markets. We have to be able to say that if Phoenix has a critical need for water and they're willing to pay for it, um, you know, they can go to this water bank and they can pay people to conserve or they can pay Yuma to uh, install more efficient systems so they can move water by by efficiency from irrigation uses to municipal uses. Could that work? When you when you look at the the landscape, the political landscape, the legal landscape, 
the fact that this system has been in place for decades and decades, would would something like that take? Um, I, I suppose it has to, right? Because it's yeah, just, that, we have no choice. Um, yeah. We really have no choice. Uh, and, you know, the bottom line is we're going to have to use the water nature's giving us, and we got to figure out how to do it. And the sooner we do that, the better off. Now, there will be some augmentation. There'll be some, by augmentation, I mean, you know, the uh, development of some desalinization projects. And, you know, on the small scale, they're not, they're not going to, they're going to be maybe two, three, four, five percent of the, the total use. They're not going to be 50%. You know, so we're going to have some of those projects that will make things a little easier here and there. But overall, we're just going to have to cut uses by a couple million acre feet a year. And that's that's a lot of irrigation. I, I think it because, like I said, you could cut every municipal use, every human, you know, indoor use of water in the in the Colorado River Basin. And we still have an oversupply. It's got to come from uh, irrigated agriculture. So and we got to figure out a way so we can move. People can make money by, the you know, by moving lower value uses to higher value uses. That's hmm. what an economic market does. So wait, are you saying that, because you know, the question is, if you allocate water based on actual availability, how does that change things? What, how does that change the way the West looks or how we behave? And one of the big questions for, for I, I guess, every place in the West is, what does that mean for growth? Because you're talking about, well, we'll have to live, we'll have to limit agriculture. We'll have to cut that part of it. But what about the part where people need water to create subdivisions and develop other places to live? Is that going to be part of the equation here? Or will that be impacted? It, it'll raise the cost of building homes. I huh. don't think it will cut them off. Um, I use the Colorado Front Range for an example. On the Front Range of Colorado, home developers have become very good at buying up agricultural water supplies and converting those um, to municipal uses. Um, that's going to happen basin-wide. That's going to happen in Utah. It's going to happen in California. It's already happened in California and Colorado. And it's going to happen everywhere. You know, the lack of water isn't going to slow, you know, the development of new houses. It means they're going to cost more because that water is going to be cost the developers more to obtain. And they're going to have to go to where the water is being used. Where's the water being used in agriculture? So I think that's when I say there's a market. Money is going to drive where water is used in the future. Eric Hune. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this. Eric Kuhn, along with John Fleck, he's co-author of the book, Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter at Radio West. The program was produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.